Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. For those who may be new or visiting, uh, my name is Tyler David. I'm the downtown AM campus pastor and one of our preaching pastors here at the Stone, and we're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And obviously, we'll be continuing on in the gospel of Mark, as we've been doing for some time. And next week, I'm excited, we're going to have um, our summer preaching series begin and have men from outside of our church, around the country, come teach us the Word of God. It'd be great for us as a church to hear different voices and to hear what God's doing around the country. But today, we're in the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, as we continue to look at the life and ministry of the risen Christ. And today, we're looking at the last of four different challenges and questions Jesus has received from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So Jesus had been doing ministry, he comes into Jerusalem, and as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, the religious leaders from various sects of Judaism begin to challenge him. They begin to question him. Because this Jesus, this rabbi who some think is the Messiah, who is the Messiah, has questioned their leadership, questioned their authority, questioned their teaching about God. And now he's in the center of their power, he's in Jerusalem, and now they feel very threatened by him, so they come up with a plan. They think, okay, we're going to trap this Jesus, this so-called Messiah, in his talk. So they come to him with clever questions about his authority or about the role of the government or the resurrection. And they lay these traps at Jesus' feet, and every time he evades them, every time he outsmarts them, every time he proves that they are more foolish than they realize. That's happened up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. But in chapter 12, in this last part of chapter 12, we're going to see a little different challenge. A little different question. See, this question that Jesus gets today is not from a, a plan from some religious sect. It's from an individual. It's from an individual. It's from a scribe. And his question to Jesus is, what's the most important command of God? What he's saying is, what's the most important thing to God? What does he care about most? And this question that he asks, all of us have an answer to it. All of us in this room have an answer to this question, whether it's conscious or unconscious. We all have a que- an answer to this question. All of us have an answer to what we think God views as most important because all of us in this room take certain commands of God more serious than others. All of us in this room take certain commands of God more serious than others. Even those in this room, in this room we love Jesus, we believe in the Bible, it's the word of God, but yet we still take certain things more serious. There are certain commands of God that when we break them and disobey them, we feel more guilt and shame over than others. And the same is true for people outside the church. Even people outside the church in our city, I rarely meet anyone in our city who doesn't like certain things of the Bible. I rarely meet anyone in our city who doesn't value certain things that God has to say in the Word, but they completely discard other things. We're all in this together. All of us have an answer to the question, what does God value most? What is most important to him? And I wonder what your answer would be. I wonder if I were to bring you up on the stage and ask you, what's the most important command of God? I wonder what you would say. And I'm sure we'd have our different answers, and you would have maybe the right answer to say. But your real answer, what you really believe is most important to God, is shown by your negative emotions. What you really believe about what God says is most important is revealed when you have those intense amounts of negative emotions when you break that certain command. There are certain commands that when you break them, you feel more sadness, more sorrow, more shame, more guilt, and on and on we could go. Those negative emotions reveal to you, reveal to me what we actually think God thinks is most important. And I remember there was one, a day in my life where I realized this revealing nature of negative emotions, how they show us what we really think God thinks is most important. 
And it's one day when I was 13 years old, around 13 years old, at CC's Pizza. At CC's Pizza. Get ready for this. Okay. So I'm at CC's Pizza. If you're not familiar with CC's Pizza, imagine paying a small fee to eat until you feel sick and probably a little bit sweaty. That's how it works at CC's. Okay. It's not high quality pizza. That's the reason back then it cost like three bucks for all you can eat. Now it's like five or six. Not high quality. But for a middle schooler, it's amazing. It's amazing. For, it's heaven for a middle schooler. And so my mom wanted to treat me, my sister, and a friend of mine in middle school to CC's Pizza. Because she's cheap, apparently. And so we, we go to CC's Pizza. My friend, my sister, and my mom. We go in. We get our food. We sit down. I have a perfect plate. A perfect plate. I got my, my pizza piled high. Got my cinnamon pizza coming up next. I'm ready to roll on that. I got my cup, maybe more of a bowl of ranch for dipping, and my large Dr. Pepper to drink. Childhood obesity, here I come. That's where I'm headed, okay? And so I'm sitting there about to eat this meal, but before I can eat it, my sister accidentally, accidentally knocks over a Coke onto my plate and ruins everything. Ruins the pizza, ruins the ranch. And what a sane person would say is no big deal. We're at a buffet, plenty of food for me, okay? There's no limit to the amount of food in new plates that I can get. That's no problem, no big deal, little sister. That's what a sane person would have said. A crazy person like me, she spills the Coke, and I immediately get this negative emotion that you call rage. And I stand up, I stand up, I grab my Dr. Pepper, and I throw it all over my sister. All over her in the middle of everyone sees he's like, what is wrong with that kid? And everyone's kind of looking at us. And I can remember him holding the empty cup in my hand, looking at my sister. She's starting to cry because her face and hair and her shirt's covered in Dr. Pepper. And everyone's kind of looking at us. And I'm sitting there thinking, what have I done? And my mom said what everyone was thinking, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. But apparently, 13-year-old Tyler takes his food pretty seriously. Apparently, that negative emotion, borderline crazy emotion, revealed something. I find my CC's pizza very, very valuable and important. It reveals that. I didn't respond that way in every circumstance of my life. I wasn't walking around throwing Coke on people every time I got upset. I didn't do that. That moment in particular revealed something about me. And as crazy and as silly as that story is, it's a good example of how negative emotions work. They reveal what we value. They reveal what we love. And when it comes to God, those commands that you break that bring more shame, more guilt, show you that you think those commands are more important. You think those certain commands are more important. So for some of us, we think what God values most is people feeling loved. That's what you would say God values. That's what you would functionally say. So that, that's why anytime someone makes you feel unloved, anytime someone makes anyone else feel unloved, you have anger and frustration towards them. Guilt about that. Anytime you think, you even think you hurt someone's feelings, you can't think about anything else the rest of the day. You're anxious about it. And more so over that than any other sin in your life because you think that's what God values most. For others of us, it's Bible reading. We think what God values most is our reading of the Bible. So if you read your Bible, you feel great. If you don't read your Bible, you feel really guilty. That's why if I were to ask you, hey, how are you and God doing? Your response would be, well, in your mind, you would go to, well, how's my Bible reading been? You define a whole week, a whole month, based on how consistently you read the scriptures. And if you haven't read them, you feel very guilty and ashamed. See, negative emotions reveal what we, how we would answer this question that the scribe asked Jesus. 
And for others of us in this room, it could be managing your finances or managing your time or social justice. But all of us have these things, these things that God has said, we take them a little more serious than others. And the scribe is going to ask Jesus today, Jesus, what would you say? Jesus, what would you say is the most important command of God? And Jesus' answer is going to do two things. He's going to do two things. He's going to teach us that the word of God is weighty and it's joyful. He's going to increase the weight and the joy of obeying God. So if you have a Bible, look at Mark 12, verse 28. If you don't, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the scribe comes to Jesus with what are probably mixed motives. Probably mixed motives. He's a scribe. He's part of the Pharisees' party. So I'm sure part of him wants to trap Jesus. Part of him wants to destroy Jesus. But there's part of him that wants to know his answer. There's part of him that's intrigued by Jesus. The text tells us he thought Jesus had answered the questions wisely. So he wants to know, Jesus, how would you categorize all the Old Testament commands? And for this scribe in particular, this is a very practical question for him. See, scribes were teachers of the law. And what they would do, they'd spend their time putting all the 613 different commandments in the Old Testament into categories, into tiers of importance. And so he's, this is a question we all have, but for him it's a practical question. This is his work, this is his life. He says, Jesus, how would you do this? How would you categorize the word of God? Look back again at Jesus' his response in verse 29. 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus responds to his question with two inseparable commands. Jesus says the purpose of the law, the purpose of all those Old Testament laws is this, to love God supremely and to love others greatly. To love God supremely and to love others greatly. That is the purpose for the commands of God. I want you to notice how he describes the love that he wants for himself and the love he wants for other people. God describes them differently. Jesus describes them differently. He says, God wants you to love other people the way you would love yourself, the way you would care for yourself, the way you would serve yourself. Do that to other people. But he wants a different type of love for himself. He wants a supreme love for himself. He wants a, a love that is all your faculties, all the time, without fail, proactive pursuit of God. They're different loves, but they're inseparable. They're inseparable because often the way you and I show our supreme love for God is by loving others greatly. We demonstrate our supreme love for God by loving others greatly. They're inseparable. So all the commands of God in the Old Testament, all the future commands that the Spirit would give the church through the apostles in the New Testament, all of them summed up, love God supremely, love others greatly. And when Jesus says this, 
I think all of us tend to think that he's lowering the bar. We all kind of tend to think, well, he's kind of making it easier for us. He's, he doesn't really care about all those rules. Like, all he cares about is love. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, what Jesus is doing, he's making God's word more stringent. He's making God's word more demanding. He's raising the bar for what obedience looks like. See, he doesn't want to abolish the law. He doesn't want to abolish the commands of God. He wants to fulfill them. Look at Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't say commands are bad. No, what he's saying is commands are the means by which we love God supremely and love others greatly. It's through obeying them that we begin to demonstrate and display our love for God and love for people. To boil it down, what, what God wants from us all the time is right actions from a right heart all the time. That's what God wants. Right actions from a right heart all the time. See, he doesn't just want right actions with, with no heart. He doesn't just want you to mindlessly obey him without love or passion or diligence or devotion. He doesn't want that, but he also doesn't want a right heart with no action. He doesn't want us to profess our love and talk about our devotion, yet never actually do anything, never actually obey what he says. He wants both. And like every relationship, you want both. See, God wants a relationship with us, and in any relationship, you want both of those things. None of us in this room want the people that we love and care about most to just give us one or the other. All of us want our relationships to be characterized by right actions from a right heart. That's what we want. You do not want the person that you love to serve you begrudgingly. You don't want them to listen to you and obviously be like, yeah, 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 go on. You don't want that. You want their actions to be sourced in love. But also, you don't just want a right heart with no action. You don't want a friend or a spouse or someone that you love who always talks about how much they love you and care for you but never actually does anything. You want both. Every healthy relationship wants both. And so the same is true for God. And when it comes to our relationship with God, I think we've tended, we've tended to emphasize the heart piece. I think recently we've tend, we emphasize the heart piece. We, God wants a right heart. That God wants your heart, not just your actions. You've heard phrases like, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And that's true. God wants your heart. He wants you to obey out of love for him. He doesn't just want mindless obedience. But we can't emphasize that at the expense of the other. We can't emphasize that at the expense of the other. See, what I, I'm fearful that if we overemphasize that, our relationship with God will look a lot like the show Cops. A lot like the show Cops. Some of you are familiar with it. It's been on TV for about 25 years. And I actually went to uh, cops.com to get some of this information and to show you how classy of a show it is, the, the title episode on the front page was, These Ain't My Pants. And so, um, you can check it out later if you want. But it's a, it's a great show. It's been on TV for a really long time. And I'm fearful that if we overemphasize the right heart part without the actions piece, we, we'll become like this show. So in this show, there's a familiar scene, if you've seen it before. Familiar scene. So there's a domestic disturbance. And the cops go out to take care of it. And they get there, and unfortunately, and very sadly, usually there's been a man who's either verbally or physically assaulted his girlfriend or wife. So they get there, they talk to him, they normally take him down very aggressively, which is the best part of the show, and, and then they begin to walk him to the police car. And begin to walk out, and what always happens? He begins to tell the officers, no, no, you don't understand, I love her so much. You don't understand, and the, and the woman's on the porch going, and I love him too, and they're having this conversation back and forth. And when you watch that, if you're anything like me, and that dude's saying how much he loves her, 
your first thought is, dude, shut up. Shut up. Because if you actually loved her, you wouldn't hit her. If you actually loved her, you'd be sweet and kind to her. And you, you feel that because you know you can profess all the love you want. You can have genuine emotional feelings, but it never produces right actions. You have to begin to question how genuine that love is. You have to begin to question and say, is that heart really what you say it is? Because it doesn't really produce the actions you're talking about. See, right actions from a right heart is what God wants from us. We can't overemphasize one or the other. He wants both. And he wants both because this is the best thing for us. He wants both because you and I and all of humanity, Christian, non-Christian, whoever, we were all made to live in conscious submission to the word of God. We were made to live our lives in such a way where his word would be honored at all points in time. See, when you see and you long for what life would be like, when you long for relationships that don't break, when you long for, for companies that don't collapse, when you long for bank accounts that don't get empty, when you long for a place without disease or sickness, you're longing for a place that only exists under the word of God. You're longing for what we lost in Genesis 1 and 2. That's the only time, that's the only time that humanity actually obeyed God all the time. Genesis 1 and 2 is so amazing because God's word is always obeyed. See, Genesis 1, God speaks and what happens? Things come into being. God speaks direction and order and life and vitality and diversity and joy into creation. God speaks blessing over his creation. He speaks and everything does as they're told. And in Genesis 2, he speaks to his image bearers. Gives them direction and instruction and wisdom. And these image bearers know one another, not in jealousy, not in frustration, not in arrogance, but in love and service and transparency and intimacy joy. I mean, you see it, and you're like, that's what we all want. That's what everyone's working towards. And it only comes when God's word is obeyed all the time. That's what we lost. And think about how humanity fell. Think about how we rebelled against God. Think about how Satan deceived us. What did he say? What did he ask us? What did he question? He questioned the very thing that had brought life to us, God's word. That's why his first question to us is, did God really say? And our first thought is, is God's word really that accurate or that true or that trustworthy? See, what destroyed us then and was what destroys us now, we don't trust his word, we don't obey his word. We were made to live in obedience to his word. And we have been so ruined by this rebellion. You and I have been so ruined by that rebellion that happened so long ago that the word of God that should bring joy now brings an unbearable weight to us. This word that should bring joy and life and vitality can bring that, but now it comes with an unbearable weight because now we're so corrupt that we can't obey. Now we're so corrupt that it feels impossible because now what God wants from us, think about it. What he wants is for you to have the right actions from the right hearts all the time. Doesn't that feel impossible? It feels impossible. Because it is impossible for us. It's impossible for us. We've been so ruined by the fall that the word that should bring us joy now crushes us. Listen to Romans 8, 7 through 8. This is exactly what God's word says. He's describing someone apart from God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice what it's saying, it isn't saying don't want to, 
It's saying you can't. It's saying you can't. You're not able. The demands of his word are too much for us. We can't submit. We can't please him. We can't obey. And this is why I think we pick and choose God's word. I think we pick and choose what we follow and what we value precisely because we know if we actually sat under what his, all of his word says, we couldn't stand. That if you and I thought for a moment, we're intellectually honest to think, okay, his standard is that all the time, without fail, every moment, I'm always loving him, always loving other people, always obeying what he says, not in an idle way, but in a proactive pursuit kind of way, in a worship kind of way, and you sit under that and you begin to think about your life and you say, I have no hope. If you really think about that, you and I have no hope. It's not a matter of we've had good days and bad days. It's a matter of I've had bad days every day. Because we can't obey. And here's the thing. The problem's not with the word of God. The problem's with how broken we are. How ruined we are. How forsaken we are. We still have these longings for Genesis 1 and 2. We want that life, yet we can't obey the God who brings it. We're utterly hopeless. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus has to come to us. He has to give us this kingdom that none of us could enter into on our own. See, if we're ever going to regain Genesis 1 and 2, if we're ever going to regain this world where God is always loved supremely and people are always loved greatly, if we're going to get back there, He's got to let us in. He's got to find a way for us. And this is what the scribe missed. This component is huge, and the scribe missed this. See, the scribe, he recognized the greatness and importance of the word of God. He recognized, he says, Jesus, you're absolutely right. But he failed to recognize the greatness and significance and importance of God's king talking to him. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe hears Jesus raise the bar for obedience, raise the bar for faithfulness. And he says, amen, Jesus. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with your interpretation. I'm on board with that. He even throws in the whole sacrificial system and says, that too, everything's about those two statements that you just made. And Jesus hears this and says he responded wisely. He has a very interesting statement. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He says, scribe, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. You're headed towards the kingdom of God. But notice what Jesus said. Notice what he said. He says you're not far from it, but what that necessarily means, you're not in it. You're not in it. You're on the outside looking into the kingdom. You're not there. And the reason he's not in the kingdom is he didn't recognize God's Christ. I mean, think about it. He answered the question correctly. A plus, right answer. But why is he not in the kingdom? Because the only way into the kingdom is through the one he's talking to. You don't get into the kingdom by recognizing God's word as being valuable and good. You get into the kingdom by recognizing the worth of the king of that kingdom. 
I wonder for us in this room how often we confuse the two. How often we make it about just knowing this book and not interacting with the God of this book. How we think if I just memorize enough, I'll be saved. You won't. Only trusting in the king of this book can you be saved. See, he's on the right path because the law and the prophets, they point to Jesus. They tell us of this need for a savior. They crush us with the weight of God's commands so that Jesus can save us. But you don't reach the end of the law until you reach the feet of Jesus with repentance and faith in him. That is what saves. And Jesus is the only way to enter the kingdom of God because he's the only one who's obeyed God. He's the only one who has actually done what he said we're all supposed to do. He's the only one who's loved God supremely. I want you to consider this for a second. There's never a moment in his life where he didn't love God supremely. Never a moment where God went second for him. Never a moment where he wasn't in proactive pursuit of God. Never a moment when he wasn't doing things out of love for him, supreme love for him. Never a moment. There's never a moment for Jesus when he doesn't love others greatly. Never a moment when he is serving someone yet hates them in his heart. We've all done that. If you've done dishes at your house, you've done that. We've all done it. You've served someone with no love for him. Not Jesus. Not for a moment did he ever not serve out of care for them. Same way he would for himself. Jesus is the only one who gets into the kingdom because he's the only one who's obeyed God. He's the only one. He's the king and the doorway to the kingdom. And if you've trusted Christ, you're in this kingdom. If you've trusted his life, his broken body, his spilled blood, his resurrection, then you have a spot in this kingdom. And when you get in this kingdom, everything changes. The power of sin and Satan and death is broken for you. On the cross, it's broken. It's broken. The power of those things are gone, but they're still here. Everything changes, but sin, Satan, and death are still here. Their power's gone, but their presence is still here. The power of sin is broken. We don't have to do it all the time now, but it's still here. We still experience it. The power of Satan's accusations about our guilt is gone, but he's still here and he's still accusing us. The power of death, the sting of death is gone, but we still experience it in some form, in some fashion. The presence of those things are still here, and there's coming a day when they'll be gone. There's coming a day when Jesus will come back, and it'll be gone. And on that day, it'll be easy to obey Jesus. I want you to think about that, church, just for a second, because it's not our reality at all right now. Think about the day when obeying Jesus will be your first nature. It'll be easy to obey him. And if, can I just be frank with you, if, if nothing about that stirs your heart, you're probably pretty cold to him right now. It's nothing about the idea that one day I'll obey him and it won't be difficult for me. It'll be easy. If nothing in you gets a little bit excited about that, I'd be willing to bet you're fairly cold towards him right now. We long for that day. We wait for that day when obedience will be easy, but until that day, it's still difficult. Until that day, obeying God's word is still weighty for us. It's still weighty, but it's also joyful. It's weighty and it's joyful. See, the commands of God are still weighty for the, those of us who are in Christ because the standard's still so high. 
It's not like you come to Christ and, and get in the kingdom and all of a sudden you're like, all right, cool, I can do whatever I want. I'm saved. No, the standards still apply, even more so to us. No, we still have to love God supremely and love others greatly all the time. That's still the standard. Jesus is the standard. That's what we're aiming for. He says, be holy as I am holy. That's still the standard. So now, think about this. So now, just reading your Bible isn't success. It's not. It's reading your Bible out of a supreme love for God that's success. Now it's not just serving that success. It's serving out of a great love for those people you're serving. See how he raises the bar? It just got weightier and more difficult for us to obey. But guess what? God's word does not bend to us. He is holy. He is above all. So Jesus says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, you're right. He's above all others. He's holy. And when we try and attempt to obey, we begin to realize just how, just how great he is. It's how holy he is, how different from us he is. Obeying God for us in this life is still weighty. It's still difficult. But God has made a way for it to be joyful at the same time. He's made a way for it to be joyful at the same time. See, obeying the commands of God are joyful now because when we obey, we're not building anything. We're not creating anything. All we're doing is reinforcing what's already been given to us. When you and I obey God, we're not creating something. We're just reinforcing what's already there. So when you and I obey God, when you attempt to love someone or serve someone or read the scripture to share the gospel... You are not doing that so God will like you. How many of us this last week, our lives have been defined by doing these types of things to make up for past sins? That's not how the kingdom works. You obey God not to ensure a relationship, but because you have a relationship with God. You obey God not to get an inheritance, but because you've already been given an inheritance. You've been given a future. You've been given a hope. You don't obey to create. You don't obey to create, you obey to reinforce what's already true. Obedience reminds us who we are. That's why when you fall into sin, you know, we've all had seasons where we have a hard time believing God and a hard time doing what he says, and we're constantly rebelling against his word. Those seasons, it's really hard to believe God. Why? Because you're living in a way that's contrary to who you actually are. You're doing things contrary to who God has made you to be in Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. You don't imitate God to become a child. You imitate God because you are a child. That's huge. It's huge to remember that it's not obey me and maybe I'll love you. No, it's obey me, imitate me, follow me. Why? Because you're already mine. My daughter, Elle, cannot become more of my daughter. She can't become more or less of my daughter. She is. Trust me, if I could incentivize her like that, I totally would. More of my daughter tomorrow if you actually obey hell. Like, that's what I would do if I could. Doesn't work that way. She is my daughter. Why? Because she was born to me. She's my daughter all the time. But here's what her obedience does. When she obeys me, when she trusts me, it reminds her, oh, I am his daughter. This is what daughters do. We trust our daddies. We, we trust they have a plan for us and are wise for us and have good intentions for us and have a future for us. When she obeys, she reinforces, this is who I am. This is who I am. That's why I always tell her, Ellerby, you're David now. So it means you've got to be awesome. It's what Davids do. That's who we are. 
That's who you are in Christ. You're already a son. You're already a daughter. Now you get to live like it. It's still weighty, but there's joy because when you fail, you don't lose anything. When you fail, you get to see the love of God. So in the kingdom of God now, we begin to experience the weightiness and the joy of obeying God. And as we obey, you get to taste a little. Begin to taste just a little of what life with God will be like one day. That's why Sundays are so phenomenal. You take an hour and a half out of your week where you actually remember who God is. Where you're forced to think about things you normally don't think about and you're refreshed and you're reminded and you love God. Why? Not because you got better in this room, but because you're realizing just how loved you've already been. Describe, ask Jesus, what's the most important commandment of God? All of us have an answer. All of us have an answer. And maybe your answer is what Jesus said. Maybe you're like the scribe and you're like, I totally agree with you, Jesus. But here's the thing we have in common. All of us are crushed under the weight of this command. It's not one person in this room who when that command comes to you, it doesn't crush you. You don't realize I can't stand under this command that should bring me joy. All it brings is weight. And you begin to see as you follow Jesus that you're worse than you thought. That you're worse than you thought. But at the same time, you're more loved than you thought. Look at Psalm 130. You begin to echo what the psalmist says. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, Jesus increases the weight of God's word, of obeying God's word. It's much more than just an event. It's right actions from a right heart all the time. He increases the weight, and then he bears it on our behalf. He puts more on the bar and says, don't worry, I'll lift it for you. He increases the standard as he's on his way to the cross to die for all the times we didn't meet the standard. See, he loved the way you and I should have loved. He died the way you and I should have died. And he rose in triumph, guaranteeing that anyone who would trust in him gets his righteousness and his forgiveness. That's what he promises. You'll start loving God supremely when you begin to realize Jesus already did that for you. That you're not loving God supremely to get something from him. You're loving God supremely because he's already loved you and given you everything. You'll finally ascend the heights of joyful obedience and serving one another and loving one another when you finally begin to understand Jesus has already loved you. You're not earning anything. You're not losing anything. You're just reinforcing what you've already been given. So what are those things? What are those things in your life that you know are keeping you from loving God supremely? I mean, like, what's that thing that always gets in the way of your time in the scriptures? What's that excuse? What's that thing that always gets in the way of you actually praying? What's that thing that always gets in the way of you actually being generous and giving away your money to people? What is it? What's that thing that's keeping you from living like you were made to live in obedience to God? What's that excuse you're making to not love that person you know you're supposed to? What's that excuse you're making to not love your spouse and to forgive them? What's keeping you from serving that friend or that neighbor, that person who doesn't know Jesus, that you know you should talk about Jesus eventually, but you still haven't gotten to? Who are those people 
across the world, the part of the world that's never heard the gospel, that you know burning inside, I've got to give, I've got to be a part of seeing them reach for the gospel, and yet you continually say no. What are those areas? What are those areas you continue to reject the joy of his word? Don't let the weight of it keep you from the joy of it. I I wish I understood this most of my life, that I wouldn't let the weight of obeying God keep me from the joy of obeying God. And here's what's going to happen. Most of us don't want to ask this question because if we do, we have to recognize how much we failed. And you've all gotten this place. I felt this way this last week. You get to this place and you say, surely there's no more grace for me. If you've been there, you're like, okay, I get there's grace, but this is one time too many. I must be done. It must be over for me. It must be over. He's forgiven me so many times already. Maybe this is the last time. And that's when you have to remember your weakness does not triumph over Jesus' cross. It does not. That in that moment, you come to the end and you begin to realize you've only scratched the surface of the love of God for you. You remember Ephesians 2, 7, that he says, he raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages... He may show us all of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of his kindness. It's going to take forever for you and I to understand how much he's already loved us in Christ. He's going to lift up your face and say, don't you dare think your weakness can overcome my cross. You're going to experience that love. You're going to get back up and say, I want to go obey God. Not to earn something but to reinforce who I already am. Let's pray. Father, when we consider the standard that you hold us to, when we consider the weight that you've put on the word of God and just how difficult it is for us to obey, God, all of us stand here speechless saying, I have no hope. If it's based on how well I've obeyed, I have no hope. But God, your word begins to shout to us, there has been one who obeyed. There has been this king who became all that we weren't. This king who loved in ways we know we should, we've only dreamed of, but we never have. There's this king who died for us in such a way that every single solitary one of the times that we have sinned against you has been taken away. But God, we don't believe that. God, that's why we beat ourselves up. That's why we try to make up for past failings, thinking if I just do enough, he'll finally like me again. God, would you remind us this morning, that's not how you work. That the gospel of Jesus Christ It's wider than that. The love of God in Christ Jesus is higher than that and deeper than that. And then you remind your people, you go obey not to earn something, but because that's who you are. God, make us a people who believe this. Make us a church who understands this. Make us a church who displays this for our city that we have what they're all striving for. We have this God who's loved us, this God whose word is weighty, but his word is joyful. 
God, give us a new song to sing. That's what you do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.